I was at my little apartment, and my dad called me. And he said, hey, you got a minute? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, uh, so I just got a call from the Tacoma District Attorney's Office. And they're saying that there's a paternity case against me. And I was, like, shocked because my dad is a Baptist minister and he's a pretty straight-laced guy. And I could not imagine him, you know, cheating on my mom. <laughs> like, I, like that, I, was, I remember being like, like, what? This is my friend Al Letson. He's a journalist, writer, and performer. I, I remember saying, like, how? I mean, how? I mean, who? Like, what? And he, and he laughed, and he said, well, it's not me. And I was like, oh. Al's dad is also named Al Letson. The Tacoma district attorney might have had the wrong Al. But Al didn't know anyone in Washington. At the time, he was living in Jacksonville, Florida, where he grew up. I had no idea who, what this could be. So I called up really skeptical, like, yeah, whatever. The clerk told him the name of the woman who had filed the case, and it all kind of snapped into focus. She was someone he knew in high school. She was the girl that kind of disappeared, like she got pregnant. Well, I know this now. She, her parents were super religious. Um, when she got pregnant, I guess they didn't want, you know, they didn't want their community to know. And so they shipped her off to Ohio. But from my vantage point, I just know that, you know, the girl that I had fun with at 17, she just disappeared. And I remember going to her house, asking her mom where she was, and her mom said she moved. So, um, yeah, she just disappeared, and I didn't think anything of it. Fast forward six years later, she's got a baby, and she says, it's mine. Al thought, how am I going to get out of this? I was, yeah, speechless, completely speechless. It's hard to imagine our guest today being speechless. Al talks for a living. He's the host of two podcasts. There's Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and a storytelling show, Earthing. And these days, 22 years after he got that call from Tacoma, Al is a dad. Well, not just a dad. I am like a dad times four. Like I'm like dad, 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 dad. I'm Andrea Salenzi, and today on our special Father's Day episode of The Longest Shortest Time, we're going to hear about Al's life as a dad to four kids, and we're going to be focusing on his relationship with two of them, sons who entered his life after they were born, each one changing his worldview in a totally different way. But first, I want to give you a glimpse into who Al was before he got that call. When he was a dad, time zero. When Al was a teenager, he forged a birth certificate using a convenience store photocopier so he could get a job at Domino's. I used all my money when I was working there to uh, go to the recording studio. Back then, Al wanted to be a rapper. So like at 14, 15 years old, like I was in the recording studio doing my thing and producing beats. And actually, like a lot of the people that worked with me at that studio ended up to go on and have, you know, careers in hip hop, in Southern hip hop. Like, do you remember um, the, well, you may not even remember this, but there was a group called the 95 Boys. They did the song, come on, ride that train and ride it. I grew up with those guys. Like I, I used to produce in the same studio with them. 
guys. This is Who Pushed the Button, one of the songs Al made back in the day. It was actually hard to get him to send these singles to me. Yeah, they're... Oh, <laughs> 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 oh the sound you're making. I want them more. <laughs> okay, I'll send them to you. And now, please enjoy the podcast debut of Al Letson's almost hit song, Leeches. So I did that for a long time, and then I graduated high school. I didn't go to college because I'm dyslexic, and I just got tired of feeling like I'm smart and not being able to show people or being treated by teachers like I wasn't smart. It was driving me crazy. So I didn't go to college, but I found out what all my friends who did go to college, I found out what they were reading, and I got those books and kind of did my own education. When Al stopped rapping, for a long time he felt like an artist without an art form. And then in, uh, I guess, 94, somebody gave me a copy of this PBS special that Bill Moyers had done. It was called The Language of Life. They are here to celebrate life. Here, on this bridge between starshine and clay. They have come to celebrate language. And I just fell so deeply in love with it, with poetry and spoken word, that I started doing it and performing it. Al's poetry made it all the way to performing on television at a deaf poetry slam. Please give a warm Dove Poetry welcome to Mr. Al Letson. Al comes out on stage in a blue button-up shirt. He's got a thick leather cuff on his wrist, a mustache. His hair is in thin braids, chin length. For all the street ballers worldwide. Shh. Do you hear that? That ball. Bouncing on asphalt. Ringing in the emptiness of a small court somewhere near here. So that's kind of like who I was before I was this version of me. When Al was in his early 20s, he got a call about that paternity case in Tacoma, Washington. The kid in question was a six-year-old boy. We're going to call him Cable. Al came to learn that Cable's mom used to think another guy from high school was the dad, a football player with a promising future. But after some testing, that turned out to not be true. And Cable's mom turned to Al. I'd seen pictures of him, and I was sure that he was my son because he looked just like me. As a kid, Al had a giant head. And in Cable's kindergarten photo, he had a head so big it took up most of the frame. And when they got on the phone, the kid would just talk and talk and talk about Dragon Ball Z and his brothers and sisters in school. Back when Al was a kid, people said he talked so much, he was like a radio. They called him C.B. Al. As much as Al didn't want to be the father to this mystery kid, he was 100% sure they shared DNA. I was a flight attendant at the time. I could have very easily switched my domicile and moved to a different city, and then uh, Tacoma, Washington would have had to start the process all over again, like petitioning another city. You know, like, I could have just bounced around and been on the run, or, or I could have paid the little child support and never seen him, which is honestly what I think Cable's mom would have preferred to just pay and let her continue doing what she's doing, you know, and I could not do that at all. Al made plans to get a blood test that summer, start child support after that. And in the meantime, he started sending Cable postcards. 
and each of the stamps I used, like at the time, the post office had these uh, this collection of stamps that were jazz greats. And so I would put a stamp on a postcard, and I would write him a story about all these jazz greats. Like, I would tell him about Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. Coltrane is, like, my all-time favorite jazz musician, so I would, like, you know, I probably sent him, like, three Coltrane postcards. Al felt like it was about time he start this six-year-old's jazz education. And Cable told him he loved getting his own mail. Made him feel special. I didn't know anything about fatherhood. I didn't know anything about any of that stuff at all. Did did you have to have conversations with people in your life like, what do six-year-olds eat? Like, what do they do for fun? (laughs) I should have, but I was so clueless. Like, I didn't know. I, I didn't. I... I literally, I remember talking to my dad about it, and I remember asking my dad, like, what if I don't love him? And my dad was like, don't worry, it'll all come together. Cable's mom decided to send her son to Florida for the summer. The plan was he would stay with her parents in Jacksonville, the ones who sent her away when she got pregnant. And she asked if Al would be able to work a flight to and from Tacoma and be her son's escort. She told Cable that his dad was picking him up from the airport. His dad, who he'd never met in person. In a lot of ways, uh, the first day I met Cable feels like his birth story for me. I walked out to the curb where I was supposed to meet him, and I was in my flight attendant uniform, and there was another flight attendant there, and different airline, but she just said, like, you look so worried, what's wrong? And then, like, I just, like, oh, my God, like, I remember just... Blah, 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 blah. Like it all came out. Like I was like, I have a son. I never met him before. He's here. I've never been here before. I've got to pick him up. I don't know what. Blah, 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 blah. And like it was a lot. And I told her like I'm just so scared that like I'm gonna see this kid, and I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna love him. And I remember her. I don't remember what her face looks like, but I remember that she had like really nice uh, nails. Like she had a nice manicure, and she grabbed my hand and she squeezed it and she said, "It's gonna be okay, honey." She gets in the car and she drives away. And as she's driving away, the car that Cable is in is pulling up. And I can see Cable in the back seat, and he's he's jumping around in the back seat. And, and in my mind, I was like, he's jumping around like he's Tigger or something. Like he's just bouncing everywhere. And when I go to open the door, he just bounces out of the car into my arms. And yeah, and then like all my questions were answered. Like right then, immediately, I was like, oh. I love this kid. It was a really amazing moment. Like, and I, I remember just holding him and feeling his heartbeat next to, next to mine. And it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was amazing. It was amazing. But that day couldn't have all been perfect, right? You're there with this six-year-old. You've never spent a day with the six-year-old and suddenly he's completely in your care. Yeah, it was, it was intense. And I did everything wrong. With that. This summer, that was supposed to be Cable's time with his grandparents, it turned into time with dad. The grandparents flaked, so Al had to work Cable into his 23 year old life. So, me and my buddies, like, we were playing PlayStation all the time. So, I'd take him to my buddy's house and we'd play PlayStation and not let him play because he'd screw up the game. Like, I thought he would just have fun watching us, you know? Like, I, I didn't know. Like, me and my buddy would, uh, um, ball him up and like throw him around to each other and we'd laugh and we thought he would think it's funny. He he didn't think it's funny. You know, like I, I look back on all of them like, oh God, Al. Oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God. Cable started coming to Florida every summer. And Al was like, I'm really good at this long distance dad thing. 
Then, when Cable was about 11 years old, Al mailed him a brand new PlayStation. When he called to see how he liked it, Cable started crying into the phone. He said he only got to play with it for one day and someone stole it. Al asked more questions about the situation with Cable's mom and put together more clearly what he'd feared. The drugs were around. The people were coming and going. He decided to step up and pursue full custody. He wanted to live with me. It was his choice. But when he left his mom and when I took his mom to court to get custody, you know, all of that was just really hard for him. And it was really hard for me because, like, now I have to full-time parent an 11-year-old kid. You know, I was just juggling a lot. And the only way I knew how to make sense of it all was, like, order, you know, like, to really, like, be on him about doing the dishes and cleaning his room. And, and I, and I remember feeling so like, God, man, like I'm changing my whole life for this kid and he doesn't appreciate it. Al remembers his mom taking him aside and saying, honey, you can't be so strict with cable. I can see now how that didn't work for us and it's not going to work for your son. Al needed to get this parenting thing down because in the meantime, he'd gotten married and he was about to become a dad times two. This time to a girl who we're calling Storm. Should we tell your listeners that we're using comic book references as names? Yeah, this is the trick we came up with because Al grew up reading comic books. And because his kids are Marvel us. Got it? They're all from the Marvel universe. Okay, so when Storm was born, this time Al was there from the beginning. I remember her body, the way the doctor, you know, pulled her out. She moved like she like the doctor's hands moved like 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 it was a snake kind of, you know, side to side kind of in her hands. And it was it was there was this beautiful poetry to the movement. I remember that so clearly. I remember going over to where they were cleaning Storm up and, you know, after she'd come out the womb. And I went over there and I said, hey, baby. And she stopped crying like in her head, like turned like she couldn't open her eyes, but she just like she recognized my voice, you know. With Storm, Al was excited to experience everything he'd missed with Cable. The first giggles, the first steps, first words. All the stuff he'd expected when he'd imagined what fatherhood might look like. When we come back, Al's third kid arrives. And again, Al just meets him. Kind of like with Cable, but also totally different. With a whole new set of challenges. But this time, instead of being terrified and clueless... Al's going to be ready. Stay with us. Can you say advertisements? Advertisements. <laughs> We're back with Al Letson, who, among other things, hosts a podcast called Earthing. We are, uh, we're an interesting position um you don't have to look at me like that that's weird <laughs> why, why are you looking at me that way this clip comes from an interview al recently did with his third child an 18 year old we'll call thor we're gonna get into their backstory but for now i just want you to hear them talking with each other in present day <laughs> stop you weirdo we're in an interesting position because uh, uh i'm your father you're my son and uh, I'm black and you're white. Yeah. When uh, when did you notice that that was different? I didn't even notice I was white until I was like six. 
Yeah, no, like I would try and dread my hair. Like I thought like I was like your biological son for a while. Your mother and I, we didn't tell you. Yeah, y'all didn't tell me until I was like. Probably 12. No, before that. 10 then? Yeah, like fifth grade. Yeah, 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 fifth grade. Yeah. Yeah. Like nine or 10. But I mean, by then you had some idea. Yeah. I didn't really like, so people like recognize like race and stuff. I didn't. Like, my mind didn't really identify it as a difference in people. Like, I would just look at people as who they are. I wouldn't really, uh, not stereotype, but classify people in my mind by races, really. Uh, and, and I guess a lot of it is because you were brought up around. Yeah, well, like, I realized that we were different colors, but it didn't change anything. Yeah. So I thought, why would it change anything with anybody else? And how was it like at school when like your black dad would show up? <laughs> People looked at me like I was in a glass box at a museum. They were like, "What? what? Who's this guy?" Let's back up. When Al became Thor's dad, Cable, his first son, was living with him full time. Al and Storm's mom had gotten divorced shortly after losing a pregnancy, and she was living nearby, sharing custody of their daughter. And Al was doing theater now. He'd written a one-man play where he performed monologues as seven different characters, plus a DJ. And there was a pretty white girl, friend of a friend from high school, who kept coming to his shows. I remember, like, being blown away, like, how beautiful she was, but I thought there's no way she's going to talk to a nerd like me. I did the show, and she came back the next day with a friend of hers, and then she came back another day, and then I realized, like, wait, the show's not that good. They started hanging out, and Al came to learn that this fan of his was a new mom to a nine-month-old baby. Yep, that's Thor. And he was, like, a little chubby. I mean, he looked like a... um, what do they call them, a cherub? You know, those little pudgy angels, cute little angels with bow and arrow. Anyway, he, he was so cute, and he was a rambunctious little kid that, like, ran around and was crazy, and I loved him, like, the first minute I saw this kid. Like, I thought, this is the cutest baby. There was something alluring about joining forces with another single parent. I'd done a little bit of parenting, so I was able to kind of step in, and I ended up stepping in maybe sooner than I'm might have in other circumstances I might have like things got serious with her quicker than maybe before this was Al's first interracial relationship it was an experience he dramatized on his podcast and if I was uncomfortable holding hands with a white woman imagine how uncomfortable I was holding a little white baby when we were all together as a family everyone we passed would be trying to figure it out Two black kids, one white kid, a black dad, and a white mom. What? But we lived in a pretty liberal part of town, and in that bubble, we were mostly good. Except back then, there was no grocery store in the neighborhood. And to get groceries, we had to go to another neighborhood. And I hated this place. People would look at me like, Sir, is that your baby? I'd get followed by managers whenever I went in. If I had a check I needed to cash without fail, they wouldn't cash it. Once, I saw an old woman getting robbed in the parking lot. I went inside to tell the employees, and the manager wanted to detain me. 
This was the type of store I was going to with my little white baby. So the whole time we were in the store, I would just talk to him and say stuff like, Ooh, hey, buddy, you like this? You think your daddy would like this? Yeah. Uh-uh, uh-uh, don't, don't do that. I'm going to tell your daddy when we get home. Oh, my goodness, your daddy will be so proud of you. Yes, you're such a good boy. I was just scared. Scared of him getting taken away, scared of being put in jail, scared of what people would think. Al was using his theater skills in the grocery store, pretending not to be this baby's dad, because the easier, safer explanation was being the baby's hired help. So yeah, like I I created these whole fantasy worlds, and I did that because, you know, I was scared. When you walk into this grocery store, and the minute you walk in, everybody looks at you. And the whole time, people are following you to make sure you're not stealing anything. And you've got people who are just grocery shopping there who are giving you the evil eye or are looking at you angrily or, you know, like uh, won't move when you're walking their way. Like it feels oppressive and it feels like anything can happen, like someone's going to grab this baby and run. All of those things felt possible. Here's more from Al's show, Earthing. I know where that fear is from. It sprouts from memories in my youth of being run off the road by a big 4x4 truck with a Confederate flag hoisted above the cab. I was 19. I thought I was going to die. Or when I was a salesman, I was going to collect a check for my employer from another business. I was escorted into the business owner's office, and the man, an older white man, pulls out two handguns, places one on the desk, and begins to polish another one and looks me in the eye, but says nothing. I was 22. I thought I was going to die. The fear is nurtured by white officers pulling me over, checking my license, throwing me on the hood of cars, talking to me like I was trash, and at times threatening me. This happened all through my 20s, and at times I thought I was going to die. And even if I didn't know what it was then, I can clearly see it now. That when I held this little white baby or held his mother's white hands, something deep inside of me thought, if the wrong person in the wrong place saw me, I might die. Al was the only dad Thor had ever known. We had just had like a really good day together, him and I. We had like gone to the park and we'd had ice cream. Uh, one of my favorite things to do with, with all my kids is there's a duck pond not far from our house and we just go there and throw bread to the ducks. And so, like, him and I had this whole day. It was just the two of us. I remember I was taking him out of his car seat, and he loved to do this thing where he would, like, press my nose, and I'd go, honk. You know, it was, like, his favorite thing to do if I was up close, especially when I was taking him out of the car seat. And he did it to me again, and we both laughed. And I just said to him, like, you know, buddy, you can you can call me uh, daddy. You don't, you don't have to call me Al. Uh, you can call me daddy. And he just looked at me, and I didn't even think he registered. I didn't, you know, I didn't think he even took it in. And, you know, the next day, he just started calling me daddy. Like, it was just what he did. And then when Thor was about five years old, Al and Thor's mom had a kid of their own, who we're calling Miles Morales. And if you want to get that comic book reference, Miles Morales is the first Black Latino Spider-Man. When Miles was born, he was a really light-skinned baby like he looked he came out and he looked white Uh, and I think that Thor felt like oh like 
they're the same. And maybe he would, you know, as Miles got darker, Thor was expecting to get darker, but it, it never happened. Al tells a story about visiting Thor's classroom when he was a fourth grader. Al was a storyteller, and Thor wanted him to perform for his class. Here's how Al tells it on Earthang. Fourth grade, and I hadn't been to any of his class stuff. I got a ton of excuses why I hadn't. I was watching his little brother. I was working. I was on the road. Yada, 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 yada. And maybe that's true, but also maybe it wasn't. Maybe I was still dealing from this place of fear and, and didn't even realize it. So I go. And when I walk in the room, the kids are jumping around excited. My son's in the back. He peeps his head up, sees me, and runs at me, wraps his arms around my legs, saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And we walk through the class, and all the kids are looking at us. And one boy says, That's your daddy? And my fourth grader, the sweetest kid that I know, stands up straight, puffs his chest out, and says, Yeah, he's my daddy. Want to make something of it? I didn't know what to say. I didn't even know he knew how to talk that way. The little kid, all the kids, just seemed to chill out, and I was just a dad coming to tell a story. I did my thing, the kids loved it, and my son was overjoyed. But that night I got to thinking about it, and it struck me that it wasn't my son's first time defending me. The way he said it, the way he squared his shoulders, he had done this so many times before. And as much as I thought that I had been showing up for him, I realized that he'd been showing up for me. In fifth grade, Al decided it was time to finally talk to Thor about what was so obvious to everyone else, that Al wasn't his biological father. Up until that point, Thor had created his own rationalization for their difference. Maybe it was a skin condition— Maybe, like his brother, he was born pale, but would get darker as he grew older. Going into the talk, Al was terrified. I was worried that I was going to lose my kid. You know, it's, uh, uh, I felt like, you know, we'd had this, like, little perfect bubble, and I didn't want to pop it. But I also knew that, you know, we needed to have the conversation. Like, you couldn't just pretend that things were going to be this way and and not really dive into, you know, you, you got to talk about it. What comes up in a conversation like that? Actually, like, I think the first conversation was just between him and his mom. She talked to him one-on-one. And then afterwards, uh, him and I sat down, and I just asked him if, if, if he had any questions, if he wanted to talk about it. So, yeah, like, they started off slowly, but now, like, it's, like, with ease. Like, I mean, obviously... He knows he's not biologically mine, but he also knows that I love him. And, you know, he tells me he doesn't have any desire to talk to his biological father. But if he did, I would totally support him in that as well. A few years ago, Al and his wife divorced. And then Thor and Miles Morales moved to California to live with Al. When that happened, some of their close friends said, her son is coming to live with you. But Al's never been Thor's stepdad. You would be my stepfather if, you know, you just married mom and tried to force me to play baseball with you. (laughs) I can't play baseball. I know. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) You're living with me now. Yeah. uh, And we're in a new city where now we have to reintroduce everybody to the fact that I'm your father. 
It's kind of, ugh. and it's it's like it's, it's a chore. It's such a chore. Like it's, <laughs> it's like oh, I don't want to do this. Like I don't I don't want to tell anybody our story. Like it's really none of their business. We but, should just get like hats or like shirts. Like <laughs> yes, he's my father. Yeah. Yes, yes, he's, he's my son. <laughs> <laughs> He never tells anybody that his dad is black. So, like, if I show up to school, teachers look beyond me like, who are you? And then, like, he gets a kick out of watching them try to recover. If um, we went to get his driver's license recently and I said to him, we made a bet. I was like, I bet you three times a woman's going to look up at me like I'm crazy. And he's like. Uh, I think twice and I won it was three I mean when he uh, his friends he he hangs with a wide group of friends like he's got black friends white friends Latino Asian friends like it doesn't matter but he never tells them so like I'll show up to pick him up and they'll be looking like who is that and he's like oh it's my dad you know like or he'll ask me to give somebody a ride home and we'll get in the car and he'll be like uh yeah this this is my dad and they'll they'll their eyes will be wide he thinks it's so damn funny i don't like sometimes i would like 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 dude can you give people a little bit he's like no i'm like okay fine 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 thor of course understands why his dad doesn't always find this so damn funny I think you're absolutely right. I don't think this was just a an unusual election with an unusual candidate. I, I think this really was a paradigmatic shift. Now, I want to take you back to November 2016, the day after the presidential election. That day, Al interviewed the white nationalist Richard Spencer for his show Reveal. During the interview, Spencer told Al that he believes Trump's election was an important first step towards a new post-America whites-only nation an ethno state. And so you've got a person of color right now. Talk to me about your white ethno state. Let's not talk about the ethno state. Let's talk about identity. Who are you? If I say that, don't think about it. Just answer. Who are you? Sure. I'm, 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 I'm an African-American male that has four kids. One of those kids is a white kid. I adopted him. He has no black blood in his body at all. He is the, the apple of my eye. He's my 16-year-old boy, and I love him to death. I have a, a child that's biracial, and I have two black kids. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm I'm an, a black man who has love in his heart for everybody on this planet, including you. So that's who I am. Who are you? I, I'm Richard Spencer. I'm a European person. I, I I'm part of this great story of Europe and our history. I grew. I was born in Massachusetts. I grew up in Texas. I like mountain biking. You know what I'm getting. When at is- Al played this interview for Thor and Miles, they were driving home from school together and sat in the car outside the house, having their own kind of driveway moment. They uh, specifically liked the fact that like I was taking it to them, especially Thor. Thor thought like, oh God, this guy is so wrong. I do respect your identity and I respect you as a black man. But the question I would have to ask is, do you really think that we're all better together? Do you think that modern America, contemporary America, there's greater levels of trust and togetherness than we had decades ago or that other, you know, more ethnically homogenous nations have? I don't think so. And I have to be honest, I think we actually kind of hate each other. And that is a very tragic thing, and that's a very sad thing. And we don't trust each other. And we can talk about how one day we're going to all be holding hands, or we can actually be realistic about this. And we can actually look at the power of human nature and the power of race. If that is your worldview, then I'm sorry. 
because like I said, like I, I have white family members that I love. Um, so no, I don't think that we, we hate each other. I think that there's not a nation in this world that doesn't have problems. But I would say that like when, when, you, when you just said like if we could go back X amount of years, would we be better? No, because I wouldn't be talking to you right now. We wouldn't, I, I wouldn't be in the position that I am in right now. And I'm, I'm sorry, but like the mixing pot is already created. You're, you're talking about going into a stew that's already been made, spilling it out and picking out each individual ingredient and thinking that you're going to have a whole thing that works again. And you won't. As a father, I think it's even more important to take these people on because like they are, they want to rip apart the fabric of my life with my kids. I mean, Richard Spencer wants a white state where Thor would be on one part and I would be in another part. You know, they want Thor and Asgard and meet in Wakanda. That's a reference to two comic book realms. In the Marvel Universe, the Norse god Thor lives in a place called Asgard, a very Nordic kind of place, which is funny because Thor does have long blonde hair and a Viking build. While Wakanda is the fictional sub-Saharan African nation, common knowledge now thanks to the movie Black Panther. Yeah, I want Thor to be in Wakanda with me. In a bit, Al makes the ultimate comic hero move. His cast of characters are about to combine forces. Some of them have been with the Al Letson franchise from the beginning. Two of these kids were later acquisitions. And together, they will journey to a new land, volcanoes, vast oceans, and racist waitstaff abound. Don't go away. Say advertisement. Today, Al's four kids are almost all grown up. His oldest, Cable, is 28. Everybody loves him. He tells funny stories. He's a trip. Storm, who's been watching Al carefully since she was born, is 20. She can be pretty reserved. Like, there's a lot going on behind, you know, behind those eyes. Like, she's always thinking. Thor is 18 now. And he is, like, wicked smart. Like, he is so uh, intelligent. Uh, He doesn't use it all the time, but he's definitely, you know, a really smart kid. And the youngest, Miles Morales, is 15. He's got a really high emotional intelligence, like he can kind of read a room really well. The four kids have never all lived together. There have been different iterations over the years. But right now, Cable's back in Jacksonville. He's a videographer. And Storm, Thor, and Miles Morales are all living with Al in California. When they moved out here, uh, I felt the weight of being a single parent, and it is, it's, it's a mountain. I mean, there'd be days where I would work all day, pick the kids up from school, come home and cook, play a quick game of chess with Miles, and then get in the bed and sleep. And I would sleep and cry and sleep and cry. Not from, like, being sad. I mean, maybe a little bit from being sad, but mostly like exhaustion, like thinking like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. And of course, like you just keep going and going and going and going and going. And then you build muscle and of course you can do it. And there's a lot of good things that come with it too, but it's, it's huge. Al says his divorce a few years ago really changed him. He started to think about himself less as a provider and more of a parent. He started to advocate more for one of his kids who wasn't getting the support they needed for their dyslexia in school. 
He realized that another kid was struggling with the divorce and set them up with a therapist. And, you know, the breakup was traumatic. I mean, like it's a, you know, a family unit for a long time and then suddenly it's not or it's fractured. And so I just felt like I wanted to do something like really big for them. Al had an idea. What if we went to Hawaii? All of us. We had so much fun during the day and and at night. Like, you know, we, we just had a great time. We cooked dinner most nights together and we laughed and we played games and, and all of that type of stuff. But we were in Kona one day. We went to this restaurant to get something to eat. The hostess sat us down and then nobody served or talked to us for 30 minutes. A waitress came by and she put water on the table. And when she put the water on the table, she didn't even say hello. She just dropped it like silently with a smirk on her face and then walked away. And they were helping everybody else around us. Like people that came in after us were getting served. It was like we were not there. And I was furious. I was furious. And I was going to like make a scene. But I thought I don't want to do that in front of my kids. And who knows what's going to happen. They might call the cops. And then I got more issues to worry about. I need to take my kids and just leave. Uh, And on top of that, like, I didn't want to, like, the manager to make nice and say that he would comp our meal or something like that because I don't want them cooking my food. I'm good. So I told the kids, let's go. And we walked out of there and didn't say another word to anybody else. And I was fuming in the car. I was furious. I mean, like, I wasn't saying anything, but my kids know when I am furious. And I was there. I was... Al thought... At least we can add this to the list of learning experiences for my kids. At least Thor will never be another white person who isn't sure if racism still exists in America. Every night on that trip, after a long day of logistics and feeding everyone, Al had this nightly ritual. We were staying like three blocks away from the ocean, uh, from the beach. And it's this beautiful volcanic beach where like, you know, the rocks are all you know, old lava, cold lava. And I would every night go to a spot way out on that beach where the lava was, and I would sit on this black lava watching this beautiful blue ocean and watching the sun go down. And I I would weep um, because I was... I was happy, but also because I felt overwhelmed that I was doing this whole trip by myself and I had to make all the decisions and I had, I felt like I had to be like, I'm trying to give these kids a good time. And right before we left, I had this big expense that came up that kind of zapped some money away from me that I thought I was going to have. And so it was just, it was a lot. And also like, it was the first time that like I was with all the kids kind of completely by myself in a different environment. And, you know, some, sometimes like I, it was such a beautiful day that like, I just got choked up and other times it felt like, Oh my God, like I, how am I doing this by myself? I don't know, but I did it. You know, I did it. They all did it. Al's just the leader, the professor X assembling his cast of superheroes and superheroes are nothing without an origin story. The circumstances of an origin story can mean a whole lot in the early life of a superhero. Later on, they're just a small piece of a big, exciting adventure. 
If you want to hear more of Al's story about raising Thor, check out his podcast, Earthing. It was recently featured as a Radiotopia showcase show. And the episode he did about Thor is called No Ordinary Love. We've got links for it on our website, longestshortesttime.com. And while you're there, we want to hear from you. What's the origin story of your blended family? Tell us in the comments for this episode. That's episode number 164. This episode was produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Jackie Sajiko. Special thanks to Kristen Clark. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hilary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Akatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Next time on The Longest Shortest Time, Stephanie and Joey are deciding whether or not they want to be parents. You don't have, like, some idyllic fantasy of how our lives would be? It does include a kid holding the other end of a wooden plank while I put it on a table saw. They're going to sit down and answer the 36 questions to ask your partner before becoming a parent. We wrote them here at the show with help from all of you. So do not miss this episode. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, we want to hear your stories about your parents, about your kids. Tell us. Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Mm-hmm.